Hey everyone, and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And this week we have a lot to talk about. First, we have Red Hat officially dropping X11 for their next major Red Hat Enterprise Linux release, RHEL 10. We have the KD Plasma 6 beta, in which they still managed to stuck in a few features that weren't initially planned. We have some big Linux desktop plans coming from Fedora, but which will affect basically everyone. We have Budgie abandoning their plans to move to the EFL libraries, or apparently they're abandoning them. We have Google Drive problems, we have PureTube 6, we have Meta collecting data again, and a bunch of cool gaming-related stuff. So, as always, if you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, all the links are in the show notes, and if you want to support this show, because it still lives on your support, you can find plenty of links to do just that in the show notes as well. So, let's get started. So, the main event this week is Red Hat officially announcing that X11 will no longer be available in the next major release of Red Hat Enterprise Linux, which will be Red Hat Enterprise Linux 10. It is planned for 2025, so you do have a lot of time to plan for that and to prepare, and I think it's a move being done pretty nicely. What it entails is basically they will not provide packages for X11 and X.org. The only thing that they will ship is X Wayland to bridge potential compatibility issues, but Wayland will be the default, let's call it display server, even though it's not really that, it will be the default display server, and you will not be able to install X11 unless you add some kind of additional repo or something that adds it back, but it won't be officially supported. Now, Red Hat engineers basically said that they know that there are still a few gaps and that some apps do need to be updated to better support Wayland. But they also say that Wayland currently is mature enough to be shipped. And also that by the time RHEL 10 is out, they will have fixed all the major blockers that they have identified. So they won't provide any packages for X11, they won't provide the ability to run an X11 session. And they also say that this will free up some time for them to work on HDR to improve the security of the desktop in general, because Wayland does have a better security model. It will also help them work on mixed DPI settings for various displays, on GPU hot plugging, on better touchpad and touchscreen gestures, and a lot more, because basically the burden of maintaining and packaging the old spaghetti code of X11 will be removed, which will free up some time on their desktop team. So this is obviously another nail in X11's coffin. It's no secret, this thing is dying and will probably be out of most user-facing distributions in the next two or three years tops, as major desktops definitely do not want to support it anymore. Distros will have to ditch it as well. But the way Red Hat does it seems pretty intelligent because it's still in a while. It's not like they're dropping it right now. They have their test bed with Fedora, which will definitely drop X11 for Fedora 40, I think. Uh, yes, 39 just released. So Fedora 40, uh, it will drop X11 support for Plasma and probably also for Gnome, although the decision on that hasn't been acted on yet. Pretty sure this will be the case as well. Red Hat will only do that in 2025. They'll have plenty of time with the migration away from X11 in Fedora, to actually identify blockers and problems, and by signifying that, they're still one of the biggest enterprise distros out there. 
So telling developers and, and basically anyone participating in the Linux desktop ecosystem that yes, the big one is dropping X11, so better get ready. I think they're telling developers, app developers and desktop developers to actually do the porting work if they haven't done it yet. And I think it's a good way to do so. I think it's a good signal for developers to actually start supporting Wayland officially. It gives them a strong cutout, but it also gives them more than a year to actually do this work, which should be enough to make sure that when X11 actually dies off for the whole Red Hat-based ecosystem, things are mostly ready and obviously all Linux desktops and distros will benefit from that as well, which is cool. I think it's a good change. It's a good move. It leaves enough time for early adopters and people who really want that cutoff. You have Fedora and for the professional crowd, you have an additional year on top of that. I think it's a good way of doing it. Now let's talk about Plasma 6 again, because they got their first beta release this week. And this isn't just for Plasma, the desktop shell itself. It's what they call a mega release, because it is indeed pretty huge. It contains not only Plasma 6, but also the KDE Gear app compilation, which is basically all the default apps in KDE, and a bunch of extra ones on top of that, and also the KDE frameworks, which are used to build all these applications and the Plasma desktop. So it's basically a beta release for the entire KDE stack, the entire Plasma desktop stack, and all its apps, which is pretty cool. Now still, just like the alpha before, it is still unstable software. So it's meant for testing purposes. They do emphasize that fact. It's not ready for day-to-day -day use. You will encounter bugs, you will encounter some data loss, crashes, and stuff like that. But if you do want to give it a shot and see what's new and help report some bugs, then you can absolutely do that by using uh, the latest, I think it's unstable or testing release of KD Neon. Uh, you will get all of these packages right there and you can start using it if you want. But even though the feature freeze is theoretically in effect, they still managed to fit a few more features in on top of all the bug fixes, which are 180 bug fixes this week, which is huge. Uh, and there are some interesting things. First, they're gonna let you set the wallpaper for any of your displays with a revamped settings page, which looks sort of similar to the previous one, but seems also a bit better organized. Discover, the App Store, gained a new section on its homepage to showcase the new and updated apps. Uh, for now, it's only for sources like FlatHub, Flatpaks, and, and Snaps. Uh, they want to work it, uh, to work on it also for apps packaged as regular old packages like devs and RPMs. But the issue being the update timing might not always be great because obviously when you move to a new distro, you're going to get all new packages. And so it's going to tell you that basically every single app is new and they won't be able to filter through that. Uh, so it works better for flatpaks and snaps. And it's a good way to showcase the recent evolutions of the Linux app ecosystem. They also improved the night light feature. It will now, it's this feature that lets you change the color temperature of your display towards more yellow and orange light uh, as time moves on during the day. So you don't have that much blue light when it's getting close to your sleepy time. And so this thing will now display a timeline uh, to actually show you when this will be enabled, especially when you select uh, to enable nighttime based on the time of day where you're at. Uh, it will show you when the sun sets and when the sun rises, and so the various periods uh, where nightlight will be enabled. 
There's also an optional effect, uh, more for accessibility, which lets you basically shake your mouse cursor. It makes it bigger. It's just like in macOS. It's disabled by default, but you can enable it if you have difficulties identifying where your mouse cursor is. It's pretty helpful. And interestingly as well, they added a new option to the archive manager called Arc. You can just right click an archive and select extract and delete archive, which will extract the archive right there in the current folder and delete the archive after that, which is very useful for cleanup because if you don't do that, you tend to have a lot of like old stuff lying around in tar.gz form and you really want to clean that up. So pretty nice. And as I said, there are also 180 bug fixes in just one week, which is huge. And they also added a bunch of smaller UX and usability improvements to various apps and the desktops, especially for the auto hide feature that will come to Plasma 6. It will now be more reliable and the little hint that appears at the bottom of your screen when you move your mouse towards it uh, will now use your accent color as well. It won't automatically be blue, which is also pretty neat. It's a more personal touch, pretty cool. So the final release of Plasma 6 is getting closer and closer. It really does look like a big improvement over Plasma 5. There aren't that many visual changes, like the theme, the icons, they don't change all that much. But visually, you still get the floating panels by default. You get plenty of visual improvements inside the apps and the settings and the configuration of Plasma. And it looks like it's a lot more unified, like they really fixed all the discrepancies between various interfaces built with different toolkits uh, that all end up being themed with Breeze, but all look a little bit different. It looks way more coherent, way more robust. They removed some unused options or duplicates or confusing ones or stuff that was buggy, which should give a let's say a little bit more compact experience, but also way more usable. And also there's all the improvements to Wayland support, which is what I use. And so I cannot wait to move to Plasma 6. I hope uh, Tuxedo OS, which is the distro I'm using, uh, really delivers it as soon as it's out. They do release packages from the KDE Neon repo, so I should get it relatively soon. But yeah, I really want to try it out. Now, on the GNOME side of things, uh, there's more progress on all the various topics that have been enabled by the recent 1 million euro grant uh, that they got from the Sovereign Tech Fund. Uh, this money is being put to good use as they've now implemented WebP support in the GNOME platform. So basically any app that relies on any of the GNOME stack will be able to have native WebP support. So pretty nice. And they also worked on Systemd Home D, which is a Systemd let's say service uh, that is used to encrypt just the user's home directory, which would then be unencrypted when you log in to your user account. Uh, this is pretty cool work because it allows you to only encrypt your user directory and not the whole system. It's not as secure, but it's really more usable and you're less at risk uh, if you actually forget your password uh, because you can at least boot a system and try to log in in another way it's a little bit better. Uh, well, at least more easily accessible for users. So they started uh, on the support for that. And they also started work on using the TPM chips that a lot of computers have nowadays for the encryption, which is pretty cool. Uh, they also worked on plugging a bunch of memory leaks in flat packs and portals. They've identified a few. And so they're going to be working on fixing that, which is not just a GNOME project. It's going to work for everybody else. And there's also some work done on the new accessibility infrastructure. They have improved the open with dialogues in GNOME. So more apps can appear in there and report that, yes, they can open this type of file. 
And they also fixed a bunch of bugs, notably for the GNOME shell. Uh, there was apparently a scrolling issue there, which is now fixed. On top of that, there are some updates to a bunch of the GNOME apps. Uh, Gafor or Gafor, not sure. Uh, the modeling tool, the UML modeling tool, basically lets you build like so, some cool graphs with like lines and arrows pointing towards stuff. It's great for little schemes and database modeling tools and stuff like that. It got a new version. There are plenty of usability improvements there. Uh, there's Carburetor, which is an app to set up a Tor proxy on your desktop easily without meddling with configuration files. Uh, Pods, which is an app that lets you uh, manage your Podman containers, now supports volumes and the interface has been completely refreshed with libadvita widgets. And there's also an update to Kuha, which is a screen recorder with a bunch of UX improvements as well. So this week sees smaller changes to the app ecosystem itself. That's probably like we're coming towards November. There was Thanksgiving for, for people in the US uh, last week. We're coming towards December and, and Christmas for people who celebrate that and every other like religious inspired celebrations uh, that happen basically at around the same time. So a lot of people are probably less available, but it's still cool to see all that money, that 1 million euro grant being put to good use because it's always nice to see that they're working on stuff that not only affects them, but affects other people like portals, like Flatpak, stuff like that. It's pretty cool because it's going to help the whole Linux desktop and not just GNOME. And that's always nice to see. Now, speaking of improving the Linux desktop further, there was a lengthy blog post from Christian Schaller, which I think is the director for the desktop experience at Red Hat, which also includes Fedora. Uh, he posts these blog posts as a personal thing. They are not representative of Red Hat's opinions or anything, but they're always very interesting because he basically goes over all the things that the Linux desktop is gearing towards, not only for Fedora, but generally for the whole Linux desktop and every desktop distro. This is what they're going to adopt in the future. So first, uh, the first thing he talked about was Pipewire uh, with the release of Pipewire 1.0, which happened this week as well. I am not savvy enough in terms of audio and subsystems to really know what this thing changes and brings, but it's apparently a pretty big release because it is the first, let's say, stable 1.0 release of this thing. I honestly, personally thought that it was already pretty much complete and done with and ready, but apparently not, but it's still being used in virtually every major distro out there. So yeah, uh, I think it's great news to have a big update to that. And apparently uh, Fedora, the Fedora team at least, uh, and, and the Red Hat desktop team wants to focus on a bunch more improvements to Pipewire, uh, notably to add some code to support cameras in OBS, to move away from the video for Linux uh, system, which was what handled webcams and, and cameras plugged into your Linux desktop and only allowed like one webcam to be active at a time. It had a bunch of limitations. So they are moving away from that and moving to something I think called libcamera, which will be way better uh, they also want to enable support for WebRTC in Pipewire, so for easier uh, web conferencing, video conferencing through a web browser and stuff like that. Uh, pretty interesting stuff. They're also focusing on HDR, which is a major thing coming to the Linux desktop. Uh, the first use case running a full screen HDR app is actually very close to being done. We've seen examples of that. Uh, like HDR support in the Steam Deck, work on Plasma, letting you run a full screen HDR app using Kwin. I think it was on Plasma 6. So it's pretty cool to see. And it's only the first use case. It's, let's say, the easiest one because you basically only have to run 
HDR stuff. You don't have to mix SDR and HDR content on the same display. So this is still a bit further away. But Christian is apparently expecting that to land for summer 2024, which is not that far away. It's six to seven months. So pretty nice to see. Like basically at the end of next year, we'll have a fully working HDR stack on the Linux desktop, not just for gaming, but for everything else. And that's actually really, really cool. Now, they also talked, obviously, about Wayland, because if you talk about the future of the Linux desktop, you cannot avoid the topic of Wayland. They're focusing on enabling remote login with a headless system. So basically being able to log in to another computer that doesn't have a monitor attached to it using a, let's say, GDM, for example, a login, a graphical login manager, that's actually pretty nice. And this apparently should be ready for GNOME 46, so not that far away. And on the Wayland front, they are also working on something called Input Leap, which, if you know Barrier, it's a small app that currently exists but only works for X11 that lets you share your inputs, a keyboard and mouse, between different computers, whether they're running Linux, Windows, or macOS. So it's basically like the features macOS has, where you can put a MacBook next to an iMac and your mouse will automatically move from one display to the other seamlessly. Uh, you can do that with Barrier on X11 and you will be able to do that with Wayland as well using Input Leap. Pretty cool. They also talked about the NVIDIA drivers and all the stuff happening there on the open source front for these drivers with NVK, with the big updates to the Nuvo drivers. Now, full disclaimer, they still expect uh, people to need the proprietary drivers for a long while, but they are picking up the work uh, that Nuvo started. Uh, basically, the main maintainer for Nuvo, uh, he's called Ben, I think, just stepped out of the project recently after landing the basic big fixes that allow Nuvo drivers to have solid performance on recent NVIDIA hardware and basically being able to reclock these GPUs and access their full power. Uh, but he stepped away from the project after that. And so apparently there are some team members from Red Hat and Fedora that are picking up the work on the Nuvo drivers. Uh, but yeah, they're gonna work on trying to enable stuff and make performance better and use the NVK driver that recently landed in Mesa to, to provide a fully open source stack. But for now, they know that we're still stuck for a while uh, with the proprietary NVIDIA drivers. And that's why they're also trying to enable secure boot with these drivers. They identified a bunch of stuff that needs to be fixed for that to happen. Uh, they're not making any promises, but they're gonna try and have that working, which is nice because it's one of the last remaining big issues with these NVIDIA drivers on a lot of systems. And finally, they talked about accessibility. They'll obviously be relying on the new framework that GNOME is working on, and that's also funded by the recent grant GNOME received. And they also want to port the GNOME software to use DNF5. Uh, the migration to DNF5 has been pushed back, probably for Fedora 41, I think. Uh, but it's still a big improvement in terms of performance. And so having GNOME software use it as a backend will be way better for everyone using Fedora because it is definitely way faster. So that's plenty of good stuff coming. And... Again, a lot of it will really help all Linux desktops and distros, which is really nice to see, like the HDR work, the PipeWire work uh, to better support OBS and cameras, the Lib camera work, Input Lib for Wayland, uh, working on NVIDIA drivers. Everything will help everyone, not just Fedora. This is open source work that can be reused, and it's really cool. And 
it's a feeling I get these days with the Linux desktop where things are finally coming together to address long-standing issues. There's been some kind of step that has been passed where, I don't know, maybe more professional work is being done, I'm not sure, but there's really some kind of feeling that the Linux desktop is moving forward pretty much united in a single direction and fixing long-standing bugs and issues and addressing the old parts of the stack that were very limiting for a lot of stuff. It's really cool to see and I'm really excited to see the Linux desktop finally moving forward instead of trying to reinvent things over and over and over. Now we've settled on a new stack, basically everyone agrees on it and we're all moving towards this and working together. It's really, really nice to see finally. And speaking of modern Linux desktops, uh, it looks like Budgie will not, after all, move to the Enlightenment libraries uh, as a base for Budgie 11. If you followed basically what happened at Budgie, they had a long hiatus uh, where they sort of tried to decide what they wanted to do. They decoupled themselves from Solus, they released updates to Budgie 10, uh, they actually got implemented in a bunch of spins like the Fedora spin and an immutable Fedora spin as well. So Budgie is now available more widely and they have big plans to move forward. But they know that their future lies in Budgie 11, which for which they announced that they wanted to move away from the GNOME base and GNOME libraries that they used to build Budgie. And also moving towards Wayland as well, dropping X11 for Budgie 11, or at least making it a, a second-class citizen and focusing all their work on Wayland. And it looks like they wanted to use the EFL libraries, which are basic foundation blocks used to build the Enlightenment desktop, because it was more modular, it was more open to being used to build other things, and it basically was less limiting for them than GNOME. They, they tried to basically turn the GNOME libraries into something that could work to build their own desktop, but the GNOME libraries are built to build GNOME, not another desktop. And so they had to patch a lot of stuff on top of that. Basically, GNOME builds stuff that works for GNOME, and they don't really care if you want to use that to build another desktop. It's up to you to do the work to turn it into another desktop, which I can perfectly understand and agree with. Like, you're gonna work on stuff that works for you. But for Budgie, it was a problem, so they wanted to use EFL instead. But it looks like their Wayland goal is incompatible with their EFL goal, uh, because Enlightenment does have Wayland support, but it's very experimental, it is not deemed ready for end users, and it apparently isn't moving fast enough for Budgie to adopt. So as a result, Budgie is currently looking at how they can move forward with their plan to ditch GNOME libraries and components and to rebuild their desktop and their default apps using another building block. Uh, they are apparently looking at what XFCE is doing because this desktop has announced plans to move to Wayland in the future as well. And they have built, or they are currently building, a compatibility layer that bridges the gap between X11 and Wayland. I think it's called libxfc for windowing or libwindowing for or something. And basically it lets you transition from X11 to Wayland, but while retaining certain amount of features that X11 has that Wayland doesn't currently support. Uh, so it could be a good way to actually ship something not completely broken right off the bat. Could be pretty cool. But it also makes me think that we're in a currently weird place for these less RAM desktops. We, we're seeing something emerge where there's GNOME and KDE, which are the big ones, 
And these guys are moving forward at full speed. They're building their libraries, they're building their desktop on the modern Linux stack, on Portals, on Wayland, on Flatpak, on Pipewire. And they're basically okay with ditching support for older stuff because they don't need it. And they realize that maintaining all that stuff is a big burden that prevents them from moving forward at the pace they want. Gnome and Plasma are basically ready to completely ditch X11 starting next year. Like Plasma 6 recommends not using X11 and Gnome will probably do the same. I think there's already a proposition to actually ditch X11 support. Uh, they're going to start by removing access to the X11 session, which you can restore with a single file. But it's the first step to actually remove X11 entirely and stop maintaining code for that. So these two desktops are moving ahead. They are the most used ones. They are the ones most Linux desktop users use and that are shipped as the default by many, many, many distributions. The other desktops like Budgie, like Elementary OS, like Cinnamon, like uh, XFCE, uh, LXQT and, and stuff like that, Mate, they don't have that many contributors. They are stuck in a bit of a limbo for now, it looks like, because they do seem to depend on some of KDE and GNOME's components to build their own stuff, which is normal, but it doesn't look like they can quite refactor everything they've built on top of these components fast enough. So basically they're gonna reach a point where they either have to maintain older versions of the GNOME or KDE platforms to actually support what they've built on top of it, or they're gonna have to move to the newer ones, but this means they have to rebuild a lot of what they built to be Wayland only or, or, or Flatpak only or, or support Pipewire correctly. And they just don't seem to have the manpower and the time to actually do that fast enough. And so what I'm thinking is that we might see a few projects slowly die off as a result. Uh, I think some projects just will not have the manpower to catch up to offer a, a modern complete experience in a decent time frame. This Maybe doesn't mean they will die, but they will definitely lose some users that will just want the latest stuff and better performance and better gaming experience and just smoother desktops and touchpad gestures and, and better compatibility with modern apps that will definitely support all these new all these new things. Uh, if you don't want to use Wayland, Flatpaks, Portals or Pipewire, you're not going to be able to use a Linux desktop in five or six years. Stuff will just not work for you or you'll be stuck on older apps. And so if these desktops cannot make that transition fast enough either, I think they will lose users and probably lose developers and just maybe die off slowly. Maybe it's a good thing as well to just reduce the amount of choice and confusion on the Linux desktop, but it's always weird to see projects like a two-speed ecosystem, basically, where there are some major ones and some slower ones. And this wasn't really noticeable, I think, uh, in the X11 era, uh, before everyone started jumping on the Wayland train, because all desktops basically supported everything. It was just a matter of which features do you want? Do you want customization? Do you want like something really lightweight in terms of resources? And in the future, you might not get that choice, which could also pretty much suck. Or maybe just these desktops will carve themselves a smaller niche uh, that to keep supporting an older X11 based stack with more options, who knows? I think it's going to be an interesting thing to follow, but I'm also afraid that we're going to lose a bit of choice in the future. Now, we're going to talk about big tech and some alternatives and some privacy. Uh, we're going to start with Google Drive. Apparently, Google Drive has had a bit of an issue where they've lost uh, user files 
up to six months in the past, which means that basically a lot of users saw all their work reverted to the state it was back in May 2023. And any attempt at recovery apparently seems to fail, and everything saved since May 2023 is just completely gone from their online storage space. Now, Google obviously said that they're investing the issue. They told users to not meddle with their cache files or to make changes to the folder structure uh, trying to fix the issue. They basically telling users, you have lost your work. We're going to try to get it back. Don't do anything in between. But in the meantime, you still do not have your recent work. You might not be able to work at all because a lot of your projects might be deleted and you're basically paying for nothing if you're a paid customer because... Well, you've lost your work. Uh, imagine trying to write a thesis or trying to write a book or trying to have a collaboration document, planning your next big idea. Everything is gone, which is a big problem. Now, there's apparently a fix that a user contributed, but there's no guarantee it will work for everyone or that it won't make things worse. So it's probably best to err on the side of caution and to wait for Google to actually solve the problem. But it's a reminder that no, using a service from a giant company doesn't mean that things will always be better, will be more stable, will be more secure. That's a preconceived notion a lot of people have that using the biggest thing that makes the most money is always the best option because obviously they have more developers and it's going to be better. This is just not true. It is all software in the end. And software has bugs, software has problems, whatever the size of the company that wrote it or that hosts it. And for cloud storage specifically, there is zero reason to use Google Drive over anything else. There are so many alternatives that are equally as powerful. It just doesn't make sense. You can sync your files with any other cloud storage option. You can plug in any other Office suite that will have more features than Google Docs. And you can share your work and you can have people collaborate as well. There is zero reason to use Google Drive over another alternative, apart maybe from the free storage, which is a non-issue if you're a company because you can pay for a little bit of storage. The alternatives are not really more expensive than Google. So yeah, nice reminder that no, just because you use something from Google doesn't mean that it's super safe, secure or well-maintained at all. Now, in terms of alternatives to big tech, we got the update to PeerTube 6. This will not interest a lot of you, I guess, uh, but for people who want an alternative to YouTube, it is a pretty big update. Whether you just consume content on PeerTube, whether you host an instance or whether you post content there, it's a big one. Uh, first, for creators, you can now upload password-protected videos. So not only does it let you share videos to, I don't know, maybe just people who contribute and support your channel, but it also means you could just share videos with people you want to share them with without them being public. You can set a password manually for each video, or you can even manage those passwords through the PeerTube API if you have a lot of those. Now, in terms of the watching experience, if you just consume videos on PeerTube, the experience will get a lot better. You now get little thumbnails when you hover over the timeline of a video, something that YouTube had for ages. It lets you basically scrub the timeline to know exactly where you want to go. Pretty useful. Uh, you know what's coming and where to click. Now, this thing will not be retroactively enabled for all previously uploaded videos. Only videos uploaded after the PeerTube 6 update will benefit from that unless the instances admin runs a command to generate these thumbnails for older videos. 
this is probably going to be very resource intensive and so it will depend on the instance and the hardware it runs on whether they want to do that or not. I would recommend instance uh, hosts do that because it is a big added feature that will benefit a lot of people for all the content but yeah it all depends on what server you have to host your YouTube instance. Another big feature that you're getting is chapters for videos. Uh, you can either set them manually yourself or they can be imported from videos coming from YouTube, for example. Which means that finally, not only can you see the little thumbnails, but you can also just jump to the chapter that interests you inside of a video, which will be a boon for people listening or watching my Linux news video so they can skip the, stu the stuff that they just don't care about. Uh, you will also be able as a creator to replace a video with an updated one, uh, something that YouTube doesn't let you do unless you're a very, very big channel. It's a secret feature uh, for channels like LTT or, or like that. Uh, that has to be probably negotiated on a channel per channel basis, but general channels don't have access to that. And on PeerTube, you will be able to. So there's obviously the danger of having a very normal video, getting a bunch of views, getting shared, recommended, and then you replace it with, with something completely atrocious and horrible, uh, this could happen. That's probably why YouTube decided to ditch the feature to avoid these kind of problems. But yeah, it's still good to have it. And finally, PeerTube offers a stress test suite for admins to see which configuration will work best on their server to provide the best experience for people watching on PeerTube. And they also added some performance improvements, some accessibility fixes, and they removed support for the older WebTorrent protocol in favor of WebRTC peer-to-peer, which is more compatible with the direction PeerTube wants to go towards and should also be faster. So it's a good bunch of changes there. Uh, the instance uh, on which I publish my videos, which is called tilvids.com, I don't know when they will do the update. They will probably do it. They're very reactive usually. Uh, I hope they will. I will ask them uh, if they plan to do that or not. And I'll update you guys on when this is done. Now let's talk about privacy a little bit. Uh, we have some new stuff in the long series of don't use stuff from Meta. It looks like this company started, well, refused to shut down various accounts belonging to children under the age of 13 since 2019. So basically they knew these accounts were used by children and they just didn't do anything and they just let them use the app even though it's illegal in a lot of countries if these kids don't have parental authorization uh, and it's also illegal to collect data on these kids without their parents' consent which uh, obviously Meta didn't get. So it's been a bit of a while since Meta has been doing that and it's made even worse by the fact the company absolutely knew about this. Uh, employees at least knew about this. One product manager said that the young ones are the best ones and that you had to bring them to the service young and early, which is insanely creepy to hear from an adult. Like, even if you're just talking about people using your app, it's just so creepy and gross. And of course, Meta is trying to hide behind the tried and tested defense of we don't know the age of users. We don't have this data. It's up to the parents to do something about it and, and prevent their kids from installing the app. But this is obviously wrong because the company definitely has enough data to know which age category their users belong to because they have enough data to display ads to them to try and get them to buy stuff or convince their parents to buy stuff for them. 
so they know, they absolutely know the broad age range between like 13 or 15 years old. They can tell the difference, absolutely can, from what is being shared, what is being followed. They have the capability to know that. And apparently they also failed to act on reports, on people reporting accounts, like saying, hey, this one definitely belongs to a kid, check it out and remove it, and they just didn't do it. So it's another proof, if one was still needed, that Meta is a horrible company. Uh, they basically designed their apps specifically to catch people, to get them hooked on a steady stream of, let's call that content, even though I am reluctant to qualify that with the same qualification I would qualify the stuff I create or other people create. Uh, they just promote social comparisons. They just are really toxic for mental health of adults and more so of children. They're a terrible company. If you use Instagram, WhatsApp, or Facebook, just stop using that. It sucks. Convince your friends and family to move to something else. They're really, really terrible applications from a terrible company. And let's finish this with the gaming news. Uh, so first, NVIDIA users can sort of rejoice because Mesa 23.3 dropped, and it includes the NVK driver, which is a fully open source Vulkan driver for NVIDIA GPUs, which is fully compliant with the Vulkan 1.0 API. Now, obviously, it is not going to work for everyone. It is not going to deliver performance on par with the proprietary drivers yet, because it also depends on the Nuvo driver, which does have better performance these days, but is still not on par with what NVIDIA puts out themselves. But it is still a giant step forward to have that available for everyone to use easily and to start testing and reporting bugs and contributing code. So it's really nice. Uh, and Mesa also co contributes a bunch of new Vulkan extensions, uh, not just for NVIDIA drivers, uh, specifically a lot for the Azahi graphics drivers, which are what are being used to power uh, Linux on newer Macs, uh, Apple Silicon-based Macs. So graphical acceleration on recent Macs should be a lot better thanks to these updates. And I'm pretty sure Azahi will ship that immediately because they're they a rolling release. So if you use Azahi on a Mac, you should get better graphics drivers really soon with less crashes and more Vulkan support. Now, still speaking on Vulkan, the final part for Vulkan support on Wine and its Wayland driver has been merged. Uh, this work comes from Collabora, and it means that you can run some games on Wine and Wayland natively right now without X Wayland if you use the latest Wine source code from Git. Now, obviously, there are some issues, uh, notably mouse look doesn't work, which means that you will have very jittery and erratic mouse movement in first-person shooters, which obviously disqualifies this code right now from being used as a daily driver to run games on Wayland, but it's still coming together really fast. It's really cool stuff, and once it's ready, it will definitely ease the Wayland transition, especially since it looks like running a game natively under Wayland without X Wayland is much faster, and it's also apparently much faster than running it under X11, uh, which will give Linux gaming a sizable performance boost, which is always nice to see. But not everyone is super keen on Wayland yet. Uh, you might know the PCSX2 emulator, which emulates PlayStation 2 games. They just disabled their Wayland backend. Their support was apparently very broken and very buggy in almost every game, it sort of worked in KDE, but really didn't on GNOME. And the developers posted a pretty scathing comment uh, accompanying the merge request to remove their Vulkan, their, their Wayland backend. They pointed out a bunch of issues that they encountered. 
which means that for now, if you update PCSX2, you will have to run it using either X11 or X Wayland, uh, unless you install it through the Flatpak and use Flatseal to enable Wayland support, but since it's apparently completely broken, I don't know why you would want to do that. And I do agree that there are some remaining issues with Wayland, with NVIDIA drivers, with client-side compositing and stuff like that, uh, and especially for gaming. But the comment they added to the merge request was really weird and super misinformed. They, they stated that there was very little progress on Wayland in a decade, which is totally untrue or, yeah, at best completely misinformed. It just looks like somebody who got fed up with receiving bug reports and not knowing how to fix them or just not wanting to spend the time. And so they just gave up and just decided not to implement anything, which is definitely not the reaction you want from a developer because, like it or not, X11 is gone in a few years, so you're gonna have to have Wayland support in your emulator for people to use it. If not, Linux users would just stop using this because they will not be able to use X11 anymore on many, many distros. And finally this week, we also got an update to the Heroic Games Launcher, which is the tool you should be using if you have Epic Games games or GOG games. Uh, and you want to play them on Linux. The new version is 2.11, and it now lets you create custom categories to sort your game's library into, well, various categories and, and sub-libraries, basically. So it's easier to find the games you want to play, which is really nice. And they also revamped all the filters in the user interface, uh, so the app should be a little bit more legible, and they also enabled anti-cheat runtimes by default for better online play compatibility, which is also really cool because you don't have to have that extra manual step to actually play online with friends and not get kicked out of a game after 10 seconds. So that is about it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Uh, you might have noticed that this one doesn't have a sponsor. We don't have sponsors in December for the, for the show. So if you wanted to continue, if you like this podcast, don't hesitate to click one of the links in the show notes to contribute and support it. And if you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, I left all the links to all the articles I used to build this show in the show notes as well. So as always, thank you all for listening. Thanks for the support. And I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.